Hey folks, it's Dylan here, and this is the Eat Well Podcast. Now, we're going to talk about kind of a way forward for um, us as hunters uh, as we work towards reconciliation with Indigenous communities in the province of British Columbia. Uh, This is a challenging conversation to have, and as you get into the podcast, you'll see the hesitation that my friends uh, Ryan and Stephen, who sat down with me to talk about... uh, this um to have this conversation and uh you'll have to bear with us as we sort of find our way through what is a challenging conversation but it's an important one that we need to have so it's also awkward and we want to acknowledge that we're you know three individuals that come from fairly privileged um backgrounds and that we're having this conversation and at times we're reflecting on our understanding of the indigenous experience and we really should be having these conversations and learning from Indigenous people around um, that experience and, and gaining that perspective. And so I want to acknowledge that before we get into the podcast. Uh, we recognize, though, that this is a conversation that we need to have and we need to have more often within our hunting community and start to have these conversations and un- build understandings with our Indigenous communities. So there's a few notable uh, screw-ups in the podcast that I just wanted to cover off. And uh, most importantly, I want to apologize to the Indigenous communities whose whose names that we um, so poorly pronounced, uh, notably the Shepechmec peoples um, of the interior British Columbia. Um, We uh, botched that name for sure. There was also a notable error on my part when I spoke of the... um, I got the Seashell Territory and the Squamish Territory uh, mixed up when speaking about the Roosevelt Elk uh, project. And, um, of course, the, the Ohio people at Pachina Bay, who I just uh, stumbled across, I stumbled over that name as well. Um, also want to recognize that uh, we we suggested some timelines for uh, Indigenous communities and how long they have a cultural record of living on the land. And, and we spoke to uh, 10 to... 12 or 12 to 14,000 years and it's also um, in many communities it's uh, the preferred reference is time immemorial that these communities have lived here so I want to recognize that as well um, and I also just want to give thanks to um, so, so many of the people that have shared their stories and taught me about their communities their histories and how they see the land um, those conversations those experiences had have a tremendous impact on me and how I approach my life and and my work so I want to thank Eric Denise Sid Eddie um, George Michael Marshall and and Micah and and lastly uh, I want to dedicate this podcast to uh, my friend uh, Micah Mascent uh, Micah was a leader and a teacher and inspired me and others to help to work towards reconciliation and he encouraged us to have these difficult conversations so thank you so much Micah you'll be greatly missed Hey folks, it's Dylan with Ewell Podcast. This is probably episode 16. I'm sitting here in a hotel room in downtown Vancouver with a couple of my colleagues and good friends, uh, Stephen Hodgson from Bellacoola, Ryan Elphick from the Okanagan Valley, uh, Penticton area. Uh, both of my, uh, both are close friends, and, and we, we share a passion for hunting, uh, which uh, which got us uh, uh, having dinner last night, talking hunting stories last night, and. Um, we're also uh, park park rangers, and we both we all manage uh, uh, provincial parks, and we have a strong passion for that, which which kind of bonds us as, as friends. Um, and anyway, also share a passion for reconciliation. Oh uh, yes, and that is what we're going to chat about today. So that's that's Stephen saying hello. Maybe Stephen, just quickly introduce yourself. Hello there, uh, Eat Wild fans. 
Steve Hudson coming to you live from downtown Vancouver, British Columbia. Beautiful sunny afternoon, and we are in a hotel room bringing you a broadcast about reconciliation and how that interfaces with the hunting community. So this is funny because Stephen was like, I don't, I don't want to do a podcast. I particularly don't want to be podcast talking about First Nations and, and challenge. There he goes and kicks it off for us. And then and Ryan, say hello. Hey, guys. Uh, yeah, Ryan Elphick, uh, hanging out in Vancouver with these boys. It's good to see them. It's, we live in different parts of the province, so it's great to have this opportunity to spend a couple, ta- a little bit of time with a couple good buddies and have a good discussion, hopefully, here. Yeah, yeah. And so, so, so last night um, we had dinner and... We had this really great conversation. I mean, I, I these guys are on a side. They're, they're particularly good moose hunters, and they have, I think I probably referenced their um, their success in moose hunting. And I was trying to get as much information out of them about their their strategic approach to moose hunting and calling techniques, and um, didn't get much out of them. Not up for discussion. <laughs> Not up for discussion. But what we did talk about, <laughs> and I thought it was a super interesting discussion, is uh, we talked a lot about kind of. Uh, you know, certainly how we approach working with indigenous communities in our roles as as park managers and how that's changed over the course of our careers and how we're approaching it much differently now. And that conversation trended to, you know, as hunters, uh, you know, how are we approaching hunting on traditional lands or just within traditional territories as we see that the landscape is changing for how we need to relate to indigenous communities and, uh, and indigenous peoples as we work towards reconciliation and adopt concepts of, you know, adopt the UNDRIP uh, commitment that Canada has, has recently um, sort of stepped forward and committed to um, the spirit of reconciliation. Um, and that sort of brought us to mentioning topics. And I, and I think what I was interested in trying to capture again, if we can pull it off in this podcast, is just, you know, essentially what is a modern approach to, to, how we should be seeing our role as hunters as uh, on traditional lands that are unceded traditional territories of First Nations and how we could approach that in a respectful way, in a modern way, and uh, kind of a lot to take on. And I don't know if we can pull it off in this podcast, but I thought we'd try it out because like, you guys are pretty switched on when it comes to you know a modern take on this stuff, and I thought it would be an opportunity to talk about it within the wild hunting community and see what we get of it. So are you guys up for it? Let's give it a try. Let's give it a guys, try. Your eyes are like wide open. Like, oh my god, what are we getting ourselves into? You know, like, um, you know, we all have to be mindful. Like we all represent. Uh, you know, in our professional jobs, we represent uh, BC Parks and our and our professionals. What we say here is not a reflection of our. Uh, our professional jobs. We need to recognize that because we all have personal lives outside of that. Um, you know, I think for most of us, our ethics are consistent with our park values and, and work, and our and our, our certainly our ethic towards First Nations people and the communities that we work with is probably consistent. But I think it's important that we est- establish a true distinction between what we talk about on this podcast. This is our opinions and and our perspectives, and doesn't in no way reflects our uh, professional. Uh, job or responsibility or perspective. I think we have to just say that as a caveat and uh, mm-hmm. you guys comfortable with that? Yeah. yeah. I think it's important to distinguish the difference. Absolutely. It's very important to distinguish the difference between what we do in our professional roles and what we do in our activities outside of our professional roles. Um, but we definitely, like the like you say, we share the same values. Like I think we bring our values that we have within our work also coincide with that that we do within our recreational time so yeah absolutely um so 
Uh, Stephen, uh, what's uh, well? Okay, let's start, start at the beginning. Well, how long have you been hunting? When, and and where, where did you start hunting? Uh, I've been hunting. Geez, that's a good question. I can't remember when I started hunting. Mm, when I was living up in the Yukon, that's probably five or six when I got my first twenty-two with my dad and started plinking grouse. Moved into. I don't know, shooting deer by the age of like 12 or 14 up in Haida Gwaii, blasting little blacktail bucks uh, up there. We try to use respectful language about how we harvest an animal on the wild Sorry. podcast, so we try not to use violent words like blasting and whacking. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> respectful terms. Harvesting, harvesting blacktail deer. Sitka, little Sitka blacktail deer. Little is that offending to those deer? <laughs> it could be. It'd be a little. And a small deer complex. <laughs> advanced into some moose hunting with my dad, elk hunting on the island. Uh, moved over to Vancouver Island after Haida Gwaii, hunting deer on Vancouver Island. And <clears throat> hunting, been fortunate enough to receive two authorizations for hunting Roosevelt elk on Vancouver Island. And then went moose hunting with my dad and then advanced my moose hunting career with Ryan and our, our team up there over the last 16 years or 15 13. or 14, whatever it's been there now. That's long, I've been working on an invitation for your guys' moose hunt for, for 16 years. I think we're at 13. Is it 13? That's a long time. Oh, yeah. Close to something like that. Thirteen. Yeah. We went to the Blackwater with ten, so it was three years ago. So first, yeah, it was go. our thirteenth. This was our thirteenth. Thirteenth yeah. year. Okay, so there we go. So moose hunting for thirteen, well, fourteen or fifteen years. Thirteen with you guys. Um, yeah, and then just advancing. You know, got into archery hunting, grouse hunting, a lot of upland game, bird hunting with dogs over the years. Uh, some a little bit of waterfowl. But. So, I've, so one question. So, when was the first sort of significant? Um, I don't want to say the word uh, interaction or uh, with an indigenous community or individual as it related to hunting as you as you as you grew up hunting. When, when did you first kind of first start to take in the relationship that you know maybe indigenous communities have w- with hunting? And when, when do you have your first experience? Well, that's definitely an easy one to reflect on. Uh, that was definitely up in Haida Gwaii, living in Masset working there with a father in the RCMP. We went out to a logging camp. Um, we took a vessel, headed down the inlet to Deenan Bay, where we went with uh, Edison Wilson, um, which is a member of the Haida Nation. So Edison and Al Wilson. So um, I was going to school with Edison at the time. We didn't have much relationship up to this point. Um, so that was this is definitely one. It was an activity that really united us uh, more closely into a relationship. So we went out, went and did some harvesting within uh, the Haida traditional territory in a res- absolutely respectful manner and brought back the harvest into the community and shared the harvest amongst community members and ourselves. And that, um, that was like my first hunting experience that involved... Um, hunting with indigenous into an indigenous community or indigenous members. Beside that, though, I've always I've always been raised even like in Mayo Yukon, Whitehorse Yukon, Masset, and even in Comox. Right, with it, those are all indigenous communities. And now, of course, living in Bellacoola for the last fourteen, fifteen years. But yeah, we'll get, we'll come back to yeah. Bellacoola because I mean that kind of that immersion yeah, yeah. or that connection that you have within the community, I think, is, is quite profound and, and it's certainly interesting. Um, 
Yeah, maybe we'll go to Ryan. I, I, so, but you, so you, you said he was just starting to finish off with Steve. Like you were quite influenced by the. You've been kind of immersed in indigenous relationships with hunting since I was like from a very young age. So I would have been ten. On that okay, so, so yeah. that yeah, that that's quite good. interesting. That's super interesting. Okay, right. So maybe just give a quick synopsis of where your path to becoming a hunter, mm-hmm. and maybe the same question if if if, you, if something pops up for sure. you in your first sort of real connection with it. Yeah. So I'm probably closer to a lot of the Eat Wild community members where I didn't grow up as young as you guys did with hunting it didn't start in my youth or my my family members weren't hunters and it didn't i didn't start hunting until 13 years ago um, when i was you know in my late 20s actually and sort of met some buddies and through school that got me interested into it and uh from there got into hunting so it's only been i've only been hunting for the past 13 years grew up a lot of fishing and other stuff but not hunting in particular so my first hunting trip was with steve we went moose hunting that was first, your first, an- hey, first animal you harvested yeah. with a moose? That's the same first, with Eric, too. Yeah, first animal I harvested was a moose. So. That's funny. That's the same with Eric, so, too. 13 days, days later. Both yeah. both of you guys. Yeah. So where was <laughs> that first trip? You can't That's top secret. Even secret. Yeah, I'm not like, I'm asking asking there. Yeah. Yeah. you guys. It's only been 13 years I've been asking. <laughs> right by Zipper Lip Meadow. Yeah, Actually, that's yeah. not even... I'll tell you where we hunt. We hunt a meadow, the meadow, just another meadow. The three of them. And maybe All Eric's three. meadow, Steve's trees sometimes. Yeah. Ryan's meadow sometimes. Ryan's meadow. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Could look for those on the map and plug them into Google. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Steve's meadow. Um, anyways, but the, the, go to the question, though. What was the first time you kind of had an interaction while hunting or, or something that, yeah, connection to uh, the indigenous hunter, indigenous territory on your hunt? I don't know if it's ever really happened on the hunt for me. I don't think it has. Maybe the one time when we were hunting down by, um, after our moose hunt, we were down by the, the Fraser and the Chilcotin where they sort of meet together there. And these old timers came by. Remember those old timers? And he talked about hunting down in them flats, down in them China flats he was talking about. I can't I'm pretty remember sure that guy was a, a First Nations guy from the local area. And he just had some really cool old stories and stopped by and ha- hung out in our camp for a little bit. And where was that at? Down at that deer hunting spot, you know? Yeah, I can't, but, I can't remember the hunt, but yeah. I can't remember the conversation, so oh well. Yeah, it was two old guys that came by, and the one guy was just a really neat old character and just shared some really cool old sort of perspective and stories, and it was just a, sort of those larger-than-life characters that just happened in the middle of nowhere to roll through our camp and just was a, just a really neat human being to sort of spend 10 minutes with as he sort of told us some kind of cool things about the area. Cool. Yeah. That's uh, I, I was just thinking about my. I don't really have like a. I mean, I've had a number of you know interactions and with the different communities and and, and different um, you know First Nations where I've hunted and, and sort of to some degree built relationships um, with some of the different communities I've hunted in and around since then. But I guess the one that I kind of it was the biggest, maybe the biggest epiphany for me. I was maybe like. E- 20 or 22 and this is actually not a hunting story so much as a fishing story but uh it's really where a light kind of switched on for me but i was we used to go out to um pachina bay on the west coast of vancouver island and uh and we would take our boat and run out from pachina bay but in order to get the boat 
uh, out from there's an estuary there, but between the river in order to get out the estuary, you had to go out on a on a relatively high tide to get over the sandbar, and then you get out to the open ocean, and then you could actually fish a pretty good chunk of area that would uh, you know you'd be able to catch rockfish and salmon and and um, beautiful spot to hang out, but you had to get back in before the tide dropped too much. So a lot of times we'd go out as the tide is dropping, and then it would we'd run out, and then we'd fish the low tide on the outside water. Then we wait for the tide to come back in, and we come back, come back in when the tide came up. Anyways, uh, we uh, had gone out, and we tried to come back in, and it was a like it was one of those seasonal low tides where it was extreme low, and we missed our chance to get back in, and so the tide just kept dropping. So we were stuck out there for like. Well, whatever it takes for tide to come and go, which I think is fourteen like, hours. Yeah, quite a while, quite a while. Seven hours per tide change, generally. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. So, wow, we were there. But the, the, the hilarious thing was, is well, hilarious. It was uh, the interesting thing was, is 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 Eddie one of the? Um, he, I guess Eddie would be an elder now. Eddie Johnson. He's from the uh, uh, the Pachita Bay community there, and lives lives on the on the reserve lands there. And uh, over the years, he became good friends with my dad and, and became kind of a mentor to my father around fishing in that area and just became good friends. And, uh, and, uh, and then, of course, Eddie and I became good friends later on in life. And uh, anyway, so we uh, were out there sort of stuck and we, had a, we might have got our limit of fish or somewhere. I can't remember what. We were kind of done fishing. And uh, we bumped into Eddie. And it turns out Eddie, who is you know, very... You know, very much knows the water. It was it was great that he he'd also got caught out there on the low tide. So I didn't feel as bad about my my seamanship as a young twenty year old guy. So it was an anomaly he had said. So but anyways, we ended up just hanging out with Eddie, and we went ashore. And he, he took us to the. We went to um, one of the little inlets or, or what, little, little bays on the outside of the uh, of uh, Pachina Bay, and it was an old um, it's an old village site. And he just took it on. Took, took us ashore. They started giving us a bit of a cultural history of the area and talked about um, the old village that was there and then how the community members used to live in this particular location and how there was a village that had on one side of this like interesting piece of land and then there was another village site that they might they would pass go back and forth between the storms too. And then the cool part is is he took us out onto the low tide and taught us all about all the things that you that you can eat on low tide and so he showed us about sea urchins and these those things called chitons and we were catching rock crabs so we ended up just hanging on the beach having a big old fire cooking up a whole bunch of like seafood that we harvested over the course of this and then and just had this amazing connection and, and just learned so much about this area that i've been been recreating in this area since i was five years old and, and like all of a sudden like this whole world just like exploded in front of me I'm like that people lived here before and like I mean, of course, I knew that there's a reserve that, you, that we were camping on the reserve, and like you saw the interface of the people on the reserve and all the and, and all of the you know really a lot of challenging things that you see when you're when you pass through a reserve on British Columbia, especially if you come from a you know a privileged white kid background, and you're like, wow, that's that's different than I'm used to, right? And it takes a while to reconcile that, and it even takes a while, even you know, I've been exposed to that a lot, and, and I'm still have trouble reconciling. How that is, and when you see the level of, I, I mean, social economic status, right? social economic status, and, and, yeah. it, and it's difficult to reconcile. So even knowing that this is a, a, a First Nations reserve, I hadn't had the education or the support to understand that there was like, like people had lived there for ten thousand years, and this is how they lived, and this is, and in that you know two three hours that Eddie took. It just like completely shifted my view of how I was going to relate with that landscape, and certainly how I would 
I guess I mean I already respected Eddie and his family and the people that I met and that like could build relationships with. Obviously, as a human being, I. I but just the like, just the whole next level of understanding just kind of clicked for me in that moment and kind of got it. And that you know, there's a lot more to this story than we had been told, at least in our generation in, in, in high school. And I, I'm told now that there's a lot better education around cultural history of of. of you know the Pacific Northwest or, or the western part of Canada, how things came to be the, the way they are through um, colonization of these lands and, and and all the things that happened to the indigenous communities when people started to show up here. Colonized area, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, that's a really important component is having that education in the school system. I guess most of the school systems, other than Comox, you're fairly immersed in the in the First Nations culture for where I grew up until I moved to Vancouver Island, I suppose. But, um, you know, that's definitely a major component. But it's amazing having those aha moments, isn't it? Just to be like, wow, you know, you just, you, you were there, you've been there, you've, you see the area, you have some recognition or some idea of, of, um, perhaps past uh, hab- habitation of the area but until someone like really brings you on the land base and like points out these key features to be like look at this is where people live this is how they live this is the culture that existed in here from time immemorial and it's never been never been handed over to anybody else and so it's like those mind-blowing experiences right i mean that's super amazing i'm glad you had one of those that's incredible i've had a few now yeah, that's like, yeah. And it's a big, I'm so, I feel so fortunate when <clears throat> an elder or, or someone who carries knowledge shares that with you mm-hmm. and, and trusts you enough. And I mean, I think we're very fortunate in our in our jobs that we have had that experience because we are asked to build those relationships through our jobs, and we're we're asked to, and we, we're given the opportunity to work on the land base and happen to be able to like find ourselves in a position that you know somebody may trust you enough to. Yeah, it's like the way yeah, that show actually cool trust you enough yeah. to provide you that information, right? That's yeah. sacred, sacred stuff that goes on. Do you have, do you have an aha moment with, for, for you, Ryan, when that sort of... Not so much in, in uh, personal, but certainly with work. But yeah. I don't know if I want to... <laughs> We're not allowed to talk about work. Yeah. I mean, I, mean, I mean, I think in generalities, though, I mean, we, like we, yeah. we've had that opportunity. And yeah. And we certainly had that opportunity when we worked on the Sunshine Coast. Yeah, definitely. Some really powerful moments, you know, yeah. making connections there for sure. Um, so maybe for our, <clears throat> I like to call it the vast listening audience of the Eat Wild podcast, uh, <laughs> we can provide just maybe like the Coles notes of our understanding of where things are at with um, the in- indigenous rights to rights and title over our uh, what we know to be somewhat fact in how we uh, manage the landscape, uh, or how we how we hmm, share this land, or or potentially could we're treading into difficult territory. So I'm very careful with my words not to you know ins- you know uh, offend anybody, and I want to approach this with the best. My, my best knowledge of this topic, and I can try to explain it in a way that you know is, um, and maybe I'll just. There's, there's been a number of court decisions. Um, let's go back a little bit. Let's go back a little bit. Like, let's think about it in terms of like what would be proper etiquette. Like, I mean, I don't know if we need to get into the legal bounds of what's existing out there. Yeah. Well, we can go to the foundation, though. Like, I, I mean, I think most people know this, but like, 
indigenous people lived here for a cultural record of up to 13,000 years in British Columbia that we... That 14,000. 14,000 now? Yeah. At the health, is that the Heltzik site? Did? Down, yeah, that's right. Down in uh, one of the locations off the central coast of BC. That's mm-hmm. correct. So did anybody know how long ago the pyramids were built? What was it, 3,000 years ago? Or yeah. yeah. Well, most people think that, like, the pyramids... I can't remember the pyramids. The pyramids I, they weren't that really long ago, right? yeah. Well, actually, no. I mean, actually, yeah, yeah, yeah. people were living on this landscape, building communities, like, you know, 13, 14,000 years ago. And mm-hmm. and that's what the cultural record that, that we see on the landscape. And, and we're very fortunate because we, you know, again, we in our professional careers, we've been... We're we're we have, we're we're protecting some of these places as part of provincial parks, or at least we're learning how to protect them, which, mm-hmm. is, yeah. which is I think a new thing for us. It's cool. Um, anyways, thirteen thousand years ago, like, well, there's been people. There's cult. There's a cultural record of people living here, and then like two hundred years ago, white people started showing up from Europe and colonizing. These area that what is now what we call now British Columbia, and that had a huge impact, obviously, on the indigenous communities that lived here. And uh, it just just the one thing that is like, uh, aside from all of the political like uh, policy, but the the uh, governance structures that were put in place that had a, a significant impact to uh, the indigenous community. Just just straight up having the Western diseases that showed, showed up along with the initial explorers um, basically devastated the communities. There are some communities that lost 80% of their populations to uh, tuberculosis and smallpox, and mm-hmm. that had a huge impact on uh, the, uh, the communities, obviously, uh, and, and the, the family structure because it's the whole, all the elderly people may have been more susceptible to these diseases. Um, tremendous impact. And then the, you know, we don't have to get into it, but the uh, following that, the, the number of policies that were put in place by... And legislation too, right? Legislation. If you look at things such as the, like the anti-potlatching laws for British Columbia. We look mm-hmm. at um, and then the residential school and having children removed. I've heard like it's just the sixty scoop, the sixty scoop. 60 scoop. Yeah. And we, we're not the best people talking about this, so we should probably say this. No, like, yeah. this is good, but I mean, we're just having this conversation, right? And we're having this conversation with an open mind and, and an open heart too, because we're not we're not exactly we're not the professionals in this realm. We're just having this conversation and bringing it forward, and we're working on a background to bring forward to a hunting conversation and into the present day context, right? So yeah. this is good. This is good setting the context, I yeah. guess. So and, and I would encourage anybody that you know, look, I've been hearing this story more outside of my like in my in my schooling. I did a, I did a degree in in or I did. A, Part of my degree was in, in Indigenous studies, and of course, in our work, it's a big part of our workplace. And uh, but I'm starting to hear the story more outside of those those worlds, and it's and it, I think the the understanding the history of what happened to to the Indigenous peoples of this land pre or post contact is something that we're hearing more about. And I encourage anybody to you know go find go 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 find that story read about it there's much better there's much better people than us who can tell you about that story but it was a profound impact that's all that needs to be said and the, the communities themselves would be the best place to go and get the information yeah. if you're exactly if you're there there's your <laughs> but what is important in that story is that the people that lived here that managed this land uh, pre-contact did not relinquish 
uh, the rights to do so. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. Uh, as 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 Western Europeans settled areas of these, um, they never we, there was never or, or there in some cases there are some treaties, but in the, for the most part, the, the 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 discussion of land ownership or land title is still. Uh, is still I don't want to say up in the air. It's just to minimize it. It's 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 never the the title and to these lands has never been ceded by the nations that lived here. So there's a unceded by yeah. So it's never been unceded from. They they live on unceded territories, right? It's so yeah, that's exactly yeah. yeah. And 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 a numerous court decisions have have supported the position of the indigenous community saying, hey, we never gave up our right to manage these lands. Like, we, you know, we we technically... I haven't heard the word own it as much as I've heard, like, a responsibility to manage these lands, and we haven't given up this responsibility, therefore we still have title to manage these lands and, you know, and, and support our way of life uh, that has been eroded and taken away from us as a result of colonization or... Mm-hmm. Um, so and and it's been yeah. invested into the constitution. Yeah, have the right to too, benefit right? from those lands as much as the rest of sort of modern, modern culture is, right? Yeah, yeah. And I think so. I guess that's the groundwork. Like we, there hasn't been like there. Indigenous people have a strong or have have rights and title over the crown land base in British Columbia, and it's something that. We as British Columbians, I don't think fully understand what that means, and I think in our professional lives we get a pretty big window into what that means. But in the hunting community, I think we're at the very beginning edge of what that could potentially mean for our opportunities to go and harvest animals on the landscape. And I think that's what I want to talk about on this podcast. Do you think that sets the foundation enough for? Yeah, that's yeah. It's a yeah. complex. It's Our opportunities or what? It, what it just means to to be harvesting within traditional territory of of indigenous peoples. And it's like and maybe not how does that effect? Yeah, how to be respectful? Not necessarily how it impacts our ability. It can. Well, it, it, can. it can. It certainly it, can. It, yeah. So one example, and, and uh, so there was the the Slopatine decision. I think is is probably the most significant decision that's happened recently um, around what can happen on the landscape. So the, 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 the Slocatine traditional territory is an area um, uh, in the South Dakotans, and that within that, the courts, the courts ruled that, that the Slocatine never gave up their right to manage those lands and, 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 and live their traditional life, or live their way of life on that land. Mm-hmm. And so Maybe are you familiar, Steve, with what what it means with, with respect to wildlife management on those lands currently? Mm, well, there's essentially, I believe. Again, I don't. I'm not the expert on this, but the, the land is really considered to be looked at as private land, right? They have title. It's like an ownership over that land, from my understanding. So, if you wanted to go hunt on the Silcotin nation's traditional territory which the is title kind of, area the title area yeah thank you um you're going to have to contact which nation is in control of that area and ask for permission to go on and hunt in that particular area and i think that's a really important distinction that ryan just brought up so 
we have some different land distinctions with when we're talking about um, indigenous land management. One is reserve land, where it would be considered uh, private land. So the community would, has full control over who can come and go on reserve lands. Um, I think it's fair to say that legally speaking, the crown, the, the federal, government, the federal government, government still owns involved in the land, somehow. and that it's and it's shared in common by the indigenous community uh, to manage those lands in common. But it's very complicated. But at the end of the day, like you know, everyday Joe just can't go walk on a reserve land if it's posted as private land. I believe it's considered managed right. privately. <laughs> so that's reserve land. Now there's title land, which is fairly unique right now, because I think there's only one, well, there would be a couple now, maybe, but maybe I'll, I'll say there's there's this Locatine decision that, that has designated title land, which is, uh, which effectively can be managed, my understanding, as private land, which Steve just spoke to. There's also treaty settlement lands. So there's a number of treaties in British Columbia now that have, uh, through the British Columbia Treaty process, uh, the Niska Treaty, there's uh, the, um, the Kalaman have a treaty, Tawasin have a treaty, there's probably a few more that I'm not as close to or familiar with, where as part of the treaty negotiations and discussions uh, that uh, crown lands, I'm using uh, parentheses here around my head, uh, were, were <laughs> um, air quotes I should say, uh, uh, were uh, given back to the indigenous communities who, as part of the treaty settlement land, so there's, the, so those would effectively be uh, managed as private lands or as as lands belonging to indigenous communities. Um, and then the last one, which is probably really what affects us, the uh, and, and you know for the most, is that we have traditional territories, and most all nations. Have a cultural record and 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 have a you know a, have used parts of British Columbia for how they lived their their lives um, pre-contact and post-contact, and each nation has what what would be described if you went into uh, there's a number of websites that would that would help help you figure this out. But um, for example, like the Musqueam Nation where I grew up on the traditional territory of the Musqueam Nation here in Vancouver and they have a territory that extends, you know, over most of Vancouver and a little bit out to out in the Georgia Strait and 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 down south, uh, and probably covers shares territory with the Tawasin First Nation and the uh, Squamish and Tsleil-Waututh uh, uh, um, First Nations. Um, so those are those, those traditional territories often overlap between nations, uh, and within each territory, you know, they. Those, in, those indigenous communities would have you know, used different parts of that traditional territory over the course of a year or over the course of however they used the landscape. And they might have you know, hung out with different nations at times and, and split apart depending on family structure or, or whatever. But now effectively, if you look at a map, you'll look at traditional territories and there's, there'll be a bunch, there'll, there'll be some areas that you know, one nation has what, what appears to be exclusive traditional territories over some areas, but then on the outer edges, that you'll you'll see that there's a shared of, area. Shared, yeah, you have yeah. you have a nation, and then within that nation are bands or individual bands, right? So within that broader nation geographical area, then it, it's somewhat divvied up. 
the individual bands that sort of represent depends where you are in the province depends where you are in the province and how that works how that works yeah and i mean that i don't know if that's for us our conversation right that's outside of our oh for sure yeah yeah. that's a whole other story (laughs) that's for the indigenous communities to speak on their behalf yeah i think the complexity of of how we're talking about shared territories shared territories and and how probably better it's it's probably not our place to sort of have that discussion or try to describe that from our point of view but yeah we're like we're essentially coming at it from like a settler's perspective right so um and we talked about it a bit just on the the pee break there you know a conversation like this i think it's really integral to bring in uh, a member even of the traditional territory we're in to describe the territory and describe like the cultural one of the things I've started doing in my in my core class is doing an acknowledgement uh, of the traditional territories that that we were hosting. Our yeah, we haven't core done class. that yet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, maybe we should do that right now on the podcast. Okay, so okay, that's great. Yeah. So yeah. how would we do? So and if you haven't, I mean, and I think most people probably have been exposed to this, but mm-hmm. so I'll, I'll do my best here to, to do one here. So. Um, so I want to invite you to the Eat Well podcast, and I want to uh, recognize that we are on the unceded traditional territory of the Musqueam, uh, the Squamish, and the uh, Tsleil-Waututh First Nation, who have lived in these land, on, on these lands for what we believe to be over 12,000 years, and, and uh, we want to recognize and give thanks to the community for allowing us to share this knowledge around the podcast machine. And... Um, hope that the next time I sit down and have a meeting with any of these three nations, they don't give me a, give me a heck for uh, talking out of turn. Yeah, there you go. But, uh, Again, so, open heart, open mind, right? We're uh, trying to have, just trying to lead a discussion in a very complex and challenging, challenging issue, right? So, yeah. Well, Steve, you had a great point. I mean, when we just had a little break here, you're like, well, you know, it's, it's a bunch of white privileged guys sitting around talking around, in, you know, indigenous issues and, and speak to your point there. Well, just the point being it would be great to have like a member of the Indigenous community to sit here with us and help guide the conversation from their perspective, right? To help bring in, um, yeah, the, like the perspective that's being missed. Again, you got to say three white privileged males, a settler perspective, talking about traditional territories, overlap, shared issues, uh, rights and titles. So again, that's just where we are in holding this conversation. It would be good to have that, that, that voice from the, the community to community that we're sitting within one or communities that we're talking about and another to sit on the podcast and talk and share those stories as well too so it could be a great follow-up well and this is where we should like and just again to come back to our you know we're taking on a very difficult topic here and and where we kind of want it, where we thought we could take this podcast initially is just talk about some foundational pieces of what we can do uh better as a hunting community to start working our way uh along the spectrum in a more progressive way as we try and figure out what it means to work towards reconciliation with First Nations and Indigenous communities. And so, you know, having that conversation and getting guidance from, you know, people within the Indigenous community, how, how we can do this better is, mm-hmm. is absolutely where we need to get to. But maybe a starting point is for us having this conversation within the hunting community and trying to help other people get switched on a little bit to this is something that we need to start talking about and then we need to have an open heart and an open mind to to say okay this is something that when i get that opportunity at low tide to hang out with an indigenous Mm -hmm. elder i need to take that in and and start to really you know we need to start learning this stuff as a hunting community so i I think that's what we'll take we we should try and we got dinner plans people you know let's 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 try and knock off a few points that i think are um 
you know, what can we do better as a hunting community when it comes to uh, uh, hunting on traditional territories? And how can we approach it? So we had a few thoughts. So anybody pick up one of them? I can grab our notes. <laughs> well, I mean, it's just a matter, you know, the one thing that comes to my mind right away, we, you know, what we do as hunters, we we prepare, we're going to our trip, right? What do we do? We get everything. We get all this information gathered. We look at where we think that the, the animals might be hiding. and we look at maps. We look at Google maps. Google Earth. Google. spend hours poring over all these gear lists. And, and the last thing that comes to probably 90, well, I wouldn't, I wouldn't rate out a percentage, but I'd say the last thing that likely comes to people's mind is like whose traditional territory they're going to be harvesting the animal on. What are some of those traditional protocols for harvesting? And how can they work within that uh, indigenous community to to ensure that the harvest is maintained in a sustainable manner in terms of their protocols and, and ancestral laws, right? So that's a big one. That's a big one. Okay, so that's a lot. I mean, that's, I mean, and, and that's, that's again, you're coming from a place of... We're talking about preparation, right? Like, so, yeah. yeah. And, and you're, you're coming from a place of you know, having that depth of knowledge around uh, how uh, the indigenous communities approach the hunt and... and and maybe that's something that not everybody has access to. Like you, you you're very, you're very um, knowledgeable in that particular world, and, and I really enjoy. Um, like I was saying before this podcast, I, I kind of the role that Stephen plays within his, you know, where he, where he's from, and the relationships he's built. Is sort of, I, I look to him as a mentor for how to build uh, um, really positive relationships with indigenous communities and. Um, and from a work perspective, and, and uh, but from a from a generalist, somebody who's sitting, in, we're looking at we're looking out the window at uh, Condo City here in downtown Vancouver, and a lot, and believe it or not, a lot of these people hunt, right? And they don't have that. Where do they same, hang their game here off the balcony? <laughs> yeah, how, how do they get their <laughs> the, they the deer up the elevator <laughs> without the neighbors <laughs> giving them our? <laughs> yeah, I've had people tell me they're hanging their like they have to hang their deer on their back porch of their condo, you know, and outside, you know, wrapped up in a tarp and yeah. have it all figured out. I've heard some great stories. Anyway, aside, um, yeah. but but a lot of people like what can what can someone who doesn't have that immersion or doesn't have that foundational knowledge? Like what's a, and I, I think Ryan was on track there just. You know, well, yeah, we spent a lot of time pouring over all this stuff in preparation. But I think one way that we could make that connection or that that acknowledgement is is why are, are we, you, me, when we go hunting, we're doing it because we we love being out on the land. For some people, it's a spiritual experience. It's an emotional experience. There's all these different reasons why we're out there hunting and harvesting with our our friends and our family. And if you kind of piece that back to what people were doing 2,000, 5,000, or even 400 years ago, that was a lot of their culture was based around those same sort of values and ideas of why we are sort of still doing that same practice, right? And going out and spending time with our friends and family, harvesting animals to to feed our friends and family. And, And that's exactly what the indigenous people were doing since time immemorial. Mm-hmm. So making that connection of, of, of uh, you know, shared what's important value. to you and th- those shared value systems of why you're out there in the first place is very similar to the indigenous communities as well. Okay, and I want you to hold that thought because I want to close on that. Right. Because I think that's actually what I think is just so important that we start having this conversation as a community of hunters. Um, and I think that's where we need to end this. Yeah. And, I'll, and I'll, I'll build on that. Um so the first, I think this is great. I think the first thing is we should be as a hunting community at least know whose traditional territory we're hunting in. Yeah, um, and and that's a good start. So research that, and know that. Now, 
a second thing you can do, and I and I I have you know, um, we went on an elk hunt last year in the Squamish traditional territory up the Jervis Inlet, and one of the things that I did was I contacted the band council office and I said hey, can, I, I'm planning this hunt and I wanted to talk to um, if, if there's anybody in the research management department or, or is there a wildlife department within this the Squamish uh, um, uh, nation and I just want to let them know what my plan is and get some if there's anything I can do better or knowledge or if there's any knowledge, anything I can see on the land and bring back to the community like I just wanted to introduce myself and my hunting partner I wanted to introduce her plan and, and it turned out that I ended up talking to uh St. Quinn at the band office who ended up sharing a bunch of information with me and really helped us understand what we were taking on in terms of the hunt and where we were going and some history around the hunt and it really helped us understand what's going on and so I think contacting the band office and saying hey I'm going to this area is there anything I should know or anything I can do and I think that's where you were leading to Stephen and just understanding the protocols and if there's anything we can understand and at the very least acknowledging yeah it's providing that acknowledgement right yeah. so like, that's what you did there like you essentially reached out to the community and by you you know saying who you are where you're going what you're doing and asking for direction is that's a huge acknowledgement right and I imagine that probably is likely never happened by a hunter to contact the Squamish Nation to say, hey, I'm a hunter, I'm going into your, what I understand to believe, your ancestral territory, and we're going to harvest an elk there, what do I need to do and need to know? And they're like, well, probably like, wow, I've never had anybody call. And so that, that is like... Those are like little steps towards reconciliation right there. Yeah. I feel that. Now, I, yeah. hopefully, I, I think I might have just said squam, but I meant to say she shelt. Okay. And, right. and, uh, right, and yeah. I, I think, I, I don't sure if I did or not, but it will. Anyways, for the record, that was Seashelt and, and uh, Seashelt Nation who I contacted. And um, Do we have to be cautious, though, on, on where we go with this, like, 120,000, you know, licensed resident hunters suddenly <laughs> contacting every band every time they go hunting and the capacity issue within First Nation bands to handle that volume? Like, how, how, how should we... How we frame that? How do we frame that to... If we well, want this, this is like the conversation, right? Like, yeah. how, what do we do? Like, what are some of the? Things I think it's to do? great to reach out for sure. So I know that and some provide some, that recommendation. Yeah. So um, I'm going to say it wrong here. This oh god, I can't even. The Shemek, the Shemekmak, Sequatim, Sequapemek. So yeah, maybe that's it. Yeah, Sequapemek porthole. So the in the the. Kamloops North. Yes, this is Swapemek. Okay, okay, I can't I think it's Swapemek. Yes, it's Splat Scene, the 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 lakes, the Shuswap Lakes area. Yeah, yeah, that's it. That's it. So, so we should have a caveat that we do not know how to pronounce all the indigenous <laughs> communities' names. And we Absolutely, and we apologize for that, and we try our best, and I look forward to learning them as best I can with my English tongue, <laughs> my clumsy English tongue. Um, so. So last year, there was this incredible uh, forest fire that went through the, see the territory name again? Sopemek. Sopemek territory, uh, which it, for us, it, I thought it was, it, 
Okay, well, forget us. Swick Pemmick. Okay, well, I mean, Ryan, Ryan's, I mean, this is part of your, your, you work in that area, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to defer to Ryan as an expert here. So if you're wrong, I, you're yeah, throwing you under the bus. <laughs> um, regardless, they, there's a number of nations that live in and around Cache Creek, Kamloops, and uh, going up towards all the way 100 Mile House, and, and there was a huge forest fire that went through and nuked a whole bunch of uh, old pine beetle and, and fir forest, uh, and fir, fir and spruce forest. Um, and we all, all of us forager types knew that it was going to be a heck of a morale year coming into the spring of 2018. Uh, now, what was really interesting this is the, well, morale picking is unregulated uh, in British Columbia. So you, and it's a huge commercial industry. So it's worth like millions of dollars uh, that goes out and they, uh, they, there's commercial pickers picking mushrooms on the land, and there's commercial buyers set up everywhere, and it's a big business deal, and it's totally unregulated, like untaxed, unregulated, and it's a bit of a disaster on the land base because what happens is, well, for one, there's people camped everywhere. There's no proper facilities for the people to camp, um, like outhouses, that kind of thing. Wildlife attractions. Wildlife attractions, like crazy. Uh, garbage left behind. Oh. Just huge impacts from just trampling over every single thing that's left, any of the regen that's coming out. Yeah, it's, it can be an impactful... Huge, huge impact. Yeah. Now, what ha- the indigenous community uh, recognized this as a potential impact on the land that was going to happen, and, and they put forward uh, uh, a regulation... Concept for how we were going to man, how how the commercial harvest and the recreational harvest, like for guys like me, should could happen. And they put together a best practices strategy for how to pick. They developed a whole bunch of uh, they picked a bunch of locations where you could camp if you're a commercial camp, and you, and so and they put outhouses there and put the facilities there, and then they had people on patrol to like make sure that people were dealing with their garbage. Wow, and, that's awesome! And uh, they were cleaning the, the ba- ba- you know, bathrooms, and they, and they charged people a small wow, fee. Yeah, so yeah. so as a recreational harvester, I paid twenty bucks. I got a pile of information on where to go hunting. There was facilities for us to use in camping locations. <laughs> and more importantly, like it was a recognition that, you know, that this is indigenous uh, traditional territory and there's, and these, and the the community is stepping up and trying to do a good job of regulating what could be a very high, you know, a, a high impact activity. Mm-hmm. And so I thought it was kind of cool. And that was sort of the first, you know, the first I've seen of that. And I, and, you know, I, I did post about this online, and I got some people. You know, yeah, I'm not. I mean, I, I would see people who are uh, aren't super educated around the whole story, and they were. I mean, you, you call them racist, whatever you want. But I got some flack from ignorance, you know, perhaps ignorance. Yeah, yeah ignorant yeah. folks who think that they shouldn't have to acknowledge that this is a traditional territory, and there's and that it, we're being asked to. Uh, be on the land in a certain way, or, or try to use the land, you know, in a certain way, and um, so that that was that was interesting to, to see that land management effort, and, and and but I think by and large, I mean even I mean we're talking about the most like unmanageable, uh, the last unregulated commercial activity on the land base in British Columbia, and yet at least that we know of now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. Well, I think what's coming next? Yeah, well, they're not growing marijuana on the land anymore. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's all free. Oh yeah, so it is. Um, but nonetheless, that was really cool to see, and it was—it was—it was, it was, I think, you know, by and large, a success. And um, so, I think that there's, you know, so with well, where I was going with that is like, you, Ryan, you mentioned like, well, what if, what if 120,000 hunters say I'm going to go hunt here and go hunt there, and like, I mean, you know, maybe that's not what we're necessarily saying, but but what you, 
instead of there's probably 10,000 people that went and picked mushrooms in this burn mm-hmm. and they can go on to the Shikwikmik uh, webpage and they could sign up there and they leave it some information and they get some best practices guidelines as to where to go and they pay the 20 bucks and they get regular updates of what's going on like I was getting like updates on where the bears were like where there was bad bears you know disturbing camps and stuff like that like lots of good information and like and so yeah maybe just just, you know, distemper how you're going to access or reaching out to the, the indigenous yeah. communities like maybe an email might be better than a phone call depending on the situation sure, right? and, they, yeah, and they can decide and filter through if they want to yeah, respond if you're hunting back white deer, on yeah like maybe along with the other 20,000 resident hunters you know that are mm-hmm. uh, overwhelming those areas uh, yeah but I, and I, and in the case of like you know contacting the, the seashell first nation I, I, that was a limited entry hunt there's 16 authorizations yeah. for that whole area um and generally, within that community of people who manage that hunt, including the the the, this, the Squamish or sorry, the Seashell she, the First Nation, I mean, everybody's very interested mm-hmm. in every elk that gets taken out of there. Totally they, sure. they all yeah. want to see it. So I mean, I you know I tried to get, I called Sid on my way out and tried you know wanted to meet up with them and you know show them the elk and all that kind of stuff. I mean, it was part of that community, but mm-hmm. um, that's a bit unique. But I mean, but I think with the LEH authorizations, I mean, where you guys go moose hunting, it's probably not a foreign. I mean, there's only you know, there's only 28 moose tags, and maybe not a foreign concept to at least let people know where you're going, what you're doing. And if, if, there, if there is, I mean, if there is a willingness to engage and talk about it and share knowledge, all the better. And it just, I think it's an acknowledgement that we're going into. Yeah, and I've reached out to members in that community that's around there and talked about where we go and what we do and some of the areas that we harvest. And and I've talked to them about, I've asked them about their concerns with them in the areas too. And in particular, the spots that we were going, there wasn't really any direct concerns into those particular areas. But then I brought some of the concerns I thought that, you know, in terms of like what's going on in the land base out there in terms of an industry and, and some of the impacts that we're seeing in particular areas. Um, and so I brought those four to the communities too, and they were very open and receptive to that as well too. They're like, yeah, you know, thanks for thanks for providing that information because I feel that there's bigger impacts out there in these land base than there are for these few LEH authorizations. But that's for another topic, another time. But <laughs> <laughs> um, and yeah. So another thing I think you can do that's um, uh, well, actually, before we'll go, we'll go to. Have you guys ever been to, in British Columbia, there has been some roadblocks where indigenous communities have, um, whether it's over an issue around, uh, we saw recently around a, a roadblock around pipeline access, and, and in some cases, I believe with the complaint, on the Kaplan, there's been a longstanding um, concern from the, I believe it's the Taltan First Nation around um, moose numbers and the amount of honey pressure on moose on the on the Kaplan rail, railway grade in and around Dees Lake and they and they have uh, had a roadblock to limit access or at least to provide information to hunters or to try and uh, I'm not totally familiar with um, that particular roadblock but um, have you guys ever been through a roadblock in your experience with with yeah like a moose hunting location one of them um, there was talk that there was going to be uh, a roadblock up there that year. So there has been lots of years that we've been heading up there. There's talk, and there has been roadblocks in that that area. And previous tests going through, previous tests going through, and, and then it's been the provincial government that's sort of reached out to the communities and worked out agreements prior to us going in. And so, like, there's obviously higher level discussions with the province that has moved forward to uh, relieve some of the 
the angst around the hunt in that particular location. Um, I know there's higher level conversations still occurring across the Chilcotin Plateau, for instance, where they're, where that's going through. Um, and I think in terms of the other one that we were not to derail from the conversation of roadblocks, but you know, there's going to be indigenous communities looking to provide guardian watchings on the land base too. Right. So we're going to see that more and more coming into the future as well too. Right. Mm-hmm. So, there is, this comes back to the conversation. So before you move on, like, is, is, but this we don't want Gordian Watchmen, but that's a good point. This is another thing to talk well, about. Well, this I'm just coming back to the conversation around what, um, to reaching out to the communities to tell them, like, where you're going, what you're doing. Like, this, um, with the Guardian Watchmen, that's essentially what they're looking at. Guardian Watchmen are going to be, where considered to be the eyes and the ears in some some communities, not all, but for some of the communities that we know that the Guardian Watchmen are eyes and ears of the territory, right? So they go out and they look and they just monitor resource use that's going on in that area and they report back to the community what they're seeing, where they're seeing it at. So, yeah, it comes back to the conversation around... Like, how do we reach out to these communities? And, like, that's maybe one avenue in the future that we could look to and, and mm-hmm. have that conversation, too. And so then relating back to the to the road the roadblocks or road checks or whatever's been set up, um, I know that there's a road check that was set up onto the title land as well, too, where they have um, the rangers, the Honeywood rangers, I believe, were up there last year talking to hunters traveling through tidal areas. So um, there's a little cabin that was set up on the side of the road and they had their uh, you know like a, a, a there's no legislation for them to enact but obviously it's a stop that they're performing to to uh talk with hunters and any recreational user that's going through the tidal area right so yeah so it's an information stop yeah. to understand what it means to for the title land designation change yeah mm-hmm. so I haven't talked to Emory or any of the rangers that were up there last year to see what exactly their information they're providing or what the direction was that they're coming to from the community so I know I'll, they'll be speaking with them this spring and so I'll be interested to see how that went and what exactly the direction was that they're providing to, to resource users into the into the tidal area for sure um yeah but I know when we're like prepping to go on our hunt and you sort of see these things start rolling out in in the paper that hey the, you know these individual communities have considered uh roadblocks or or in negotiations with the government on their concerns regarding management of certain species and and we start to have those discussions that hey this this may affect our hunt this year this may affect our ability to access where we're going and and start to think critically about that okay what how are we going to approach this when we go on our trip? And if we do experience a roadblock, how, yeah, how do we, how do we, you know, negotiate that, you know, sensitively, um, understanding that, Hey, we really want to go hunting because we enjoy it. But at the same time, being respectful of, of the reasons why they're out there. Mm -hmm. And then, and then what are we going to say or do once we, if we do encounter encounter a roadblock? I think that was one of the things we wanted to talk about. Yeah. Yeah. That's great lead into that. So if we want to, you know, if, I think we should be careful. We're calling it a roadblock, which is what I think media usually calls it. Right. Yeah. I think we should be respectful that it's not often a roadblock. In your experience, Steve, it's actually an information an opportunity to stop mm-hmm. and get information around. Yeah, that's um, a good point. You know, the, the this local team territory. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in my experience, it's been an information stop where they provided information around concerns around the resource use that's ongoing. Um, and, and I think that we should acknowledge it's not. 
a roadblock necessarily. Yeah. Um, but if you do encounter um, whether, and I like the, I like you brought in this. I think we are going to see um, more watchmen on the land, and as you said, the you know, watchmen are um, you know, part of the. Uh, uh, in, the First Nation government, sort of a, a, a it's almost a, a, a ranger on that monitors the yeah, land. Yeah, so they call them the uh, the land rangers. I think is what they were, the title is for them for up by the Honeybutine area and the, the Chilcotin Nation there. Yeah, eyes and ears land of, of, of the there. nation on the land. Yeah, land rangers is what. Land rangers. I think we're going to see more of that coming in, in BC, where uh, and certainly um, and we probably I can't speak to that because it sort of blurs into our professional roles. But I think we'll see more of that. Involvement and role of individuals on on the territory, um, mm-hmm. being the eyes and ears, which which would naturally lend itself to having more interactions with hunters. So maybe the the, the touching point here, the point to touch on, just like you know, how how would you approach going through an information stop or a roadblock or uh, connecting with uh, a, a guardian or a watchman or a, or a land ranger? Um, I think well, part of that planning process of the hunting trip is. <laughs> is um, doing that research. So if you expect to encounter, you 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 know that there's some concerns within that area, um, and you may encounter some First Nations that that have an information check. Do your research ahead of time so you have an understanding of what their concerns are and what their reasons are to be out there in the first place, making contact with resident hunters and and other people using the land so you're educated on on what their concerns are. So when you do meet up with them, that you can have a sort of respectful. Uh, conversation with them. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, it's a great start. It's it? yeah. totally good because at least yeah. you have that little bit of information in your yeah. back pocket. Because quite often their concerns there. are are similar to what our concerns would be. They're they're worried about conservation. They're worried about numbers of animals, and these are things as hunters that we should be equally concerned about, right? So, absolutely, yeah. the shared values, shared again. values, yeah. uh, like trying to find that connection of of those shared values between. You know what you're doing and, and what their values are, right? So, um, I mean, I think that's a great place to start. I mean, just you know, this is a, this is it's it's an exchange of knowledge mm-hmm. when you have when you come up to those situations, and it's important to ask questions to try and take it an opportunity to learn about what the concerns are, and uh, and, and also you know share whatever you can for knowledge and your observations, and and I you know I, like there, I don't think you know. No one is is going to try and tell you that you can't do something necessarily. Like I think, um, but if you're educated to understand that there's concerns around a particular population in one area or another, it's important for us to understand that and mm-hmm. and to share that knowledge. And it might change, you know, the decision making that you you'll have around how you go about your hunt. And I think it's important to have those conversations. And it's an opportunity whether engaging with the watchman or at a information roadblock or whatever you want to call it. Um, so I think it's good. Open mind, open heart. You know. But again, like if you see, like if you're seeing in the media these communities, because again the media reports out, and maybe it's not necessarily accurately what they're reporting out from the concerns from the community, right? So if you see these particular communities having concerns vetted through the through the media reach out to those communities before you go in there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So similar to what we did. So I don't even know if I even talked to you guys about that last year when we were in there. But yeah, I reached out to um, a couple of the members of the community and then just had some, because I, I know that they're on the land base a lot and I know they have a good sense of what's going on. And I talked to them like quite open and freely about where we go and we had some good open dialogues of where they go and everything. like. And uh, yeah, they didn't have any concerns with us going to that location. They weren't concerned about... Uh, animals in that particular area 
but um, I guess the, they were, their conversation really related back to the higher level um, acknowledgement with the province and so that's that conversation there but the other part is to reach out to the province too and again you still there's you know wildlife biologists that are looking at population particular areas so you can have information from from everybody's perspective right so you're just like you're doing that research into where you want to go hunting the gear you're going to bring the binoculars you're going to use etc is having that information in your pocket to see like what is sustainable in your perspective like you get the information from from the from the indigenous communities from the provincial government from anybody else any other resources you want to dig into and then that helps make your like you said earlier like it helps your decision making ability to go in there to, to know you know deep down that you're making the right decision to go in there and pull animals out to harvest right so you know that's sustainable at least you have you've made the best effort you've done your due diligence to make a reasonable assumption that this is a sustainable harvest yeah mm-hmm. you know and when you're eating that delicious meal throughout the winter months that you know that yeah. you're, you've made a good decision yeah, yeah. There's, a, there's one biologist working 700 miles away that's making land use decisions for how many moose might be there and yeah there's a community of people that have sustained themselves on that moose population for you know 12,000 years well maybe not moose in some areas but yeah, <laughs> yeah but maybe, off but the land base yeah, off, yeah off the land base yeah. and so they have a good idea what's they have a going pretty on. good idea what's happening with, with the land use dynamics and population dynamics so it's well worth taking that under advisement when trying to figure out i mean i have concerns over i I mean i wouldn't hunt caribou in most of british Columbia right now because the population is even if there is an authorization to hunt a legal authorization doesn't necessarily mean i feel it's it's an ethical thing to do even though the biologists still are allowing us to hunt a handful of caribou in some areas i mean there's healthy population in caribou in lots of places in bc but in some places there isn't um so I, I think it's important for us to understand that there, I mean, there is, and I think you're speaking to it, like there's, there is that traditional knowledge of population dynamics. And, and I think we can take that under, you know, as part of our decision-making matrix. And I, well, I have a good friend, well, Selena, who's one of our um, e-wild hunting mentors, and she's, uh, her, her hunting party got a moose draw last year, and they went out to somewhere in Region 3 to hunt this moose, and they actually met one of the elders from the community while out hunting. And, and and he they, they had a great chat around the fire and by the end of the chat they, they decided to shift their focus of their hunt away from moose hunting over to deer hunting for the rest of the trip because of the information and the exchange they had with this elder around the what what was happening with the moose in that area. And for them that's what they felt best about doing, so kind of reflecting on your point exactly. Mm-hmm. So so I think that's certainly something that uh, we all need to sort of acknowledge that's part of that knowledge base that uh, we can draw on. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, and that's a difficult decision for us to make, too, coming from our society, right? We feel like there's a big entitlement, right? Like we have this system in place that's there, and we're ingrained, we're entrenched into it, right? And I've got my harvest from the provolites, yeah. I've got my right to go out there and do what I believe I'm a right North to do. North American wildlife management model? And I'm not saying that that's wrong. It's a saying that we have this, like, a large sense of entitlement through that particular process. And I think that could get you in trouble if you <clears throat> do encounter uh, uh, an information checkpoint or however we want to call them, that check that sense of entitlement or that right and, and be open and willing to listen and have a sort of thoughtful conversation with the people that are standing there. Well, that's right. exactly and, it. And, like, to, yeah, that's the lead-up is to, to have a self-reflection of, what is the system that we're really operating within and then are there other systems out there that we can acknowledge and look at Mm -hmm. so that's part of it that's the question 
to ask yourself, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, that was a great point, and I, and I think we'll move on to just two more quick things. There was uh, um, one thing I, I put down a note here is like, you know, we struggle with what's how do we address is it First Nation community? Is it Indigenous community? Um, what, what's the what's the appropriate way to if, if you're going to call up a, 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 a band office, do you say the nation, the indigenous community, indigenous individual? Like what, what's the what's the right? I mean, we we I think we've left terms like we've certainly left terms like Indian behind, and we've left terms like Native behind. And and um, what are you, where are you guys at for your? You My know? understanding right now is indigenous communities. Okay. Well, indigenous, I believe, is like the broader spectrum. Right? The broader so you're bringing spectrum. in Inuit, you're bringing in Métis, you're bringing in First Nations, coastal First Nations, and Interior Nations. So, like, I believe indigenous community is sort of like a bit more of an umbrella and all-encompassing right. term. Um, I know within the nations I deal with on the coast, it's very much sort of nation. It's like a, a nation. So, um, yeah, like the New Holcomb. The New Holcomb is the people, and New Hulk Nation is the nation. So, um, yeah. So, good trick. If you don't know, you can always ask. You can ask. Yeah. Yeah. That's really important. <laughs> yeah. So, so, if you don't know, just ask. And, yeah. and, 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 and you know, another trick is, like, you know, from a, from a. I spend a lot of time looking up, you know, First Nation websites to figure out how they present themselves. Mm-hmm. Out, well, at least on an, uh, an internet platform and a web page, and, and 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 try and practice the pronunciation and do. It's always nice if you can click on something like first voices has got to yeah, good too because you can yeah. go there and you can click on a word. If you want to know how to make sure you say the name correctly, you go to into there and they'll have the name and you can click on it and you can listen and you can practice before you go and talk to them. <laughs> exactly. So, so that's, that's where I was going to go. So yeah, there, there are there are tools. So Native Voices is a great tool for for learning how to say first voices. Yeah. Yeah. First voices. Sorry. Yeah. And then. There's another there's another app uh, called uh, Native Land app which oh, yeah. you can get on your cell on your on your cell phone which actually will tell you which traditional territories you're in. Oh wow! So that's super cool. Mm. Um, and so I use that a lot. And it's a public one. Yeah, it's it's on your phone. Oh, I mean, cool. Or you can you can download. It. It's called the Native Native Land app, and it, hmm. it covers off all of North America for. Um, so that so uh, that's a cool tool. So you can kind of be a little bit quick. You can drive up the cross province and just sort of get you know update as you go and see whose traditional territories you're driving through. So nice, but but certainly asking. And I, and I think that most people, I mean, most people prefer to be asked, you know, "How do I pronounce your name?" That's much better than me trying to pronounce your name and getting it wrong. Oh, I just cringe. I've seen other like people or other organ people come into the community and just butcher the name and keep butchering it through and every time they say it like you can see the whole community just kind of like shudders for a minute and then back into the conversation that shudder when it comes up again so it's really kind of embarrassing for everybody at the time so that's a good it's a really good point yeah, totally. and we were talking about sequetum or yeah. I can't remember the term yeah, we, we may have just totally butchered, totally butchered that totally butchered that but we yeah. came with a full acknowledgement yeah. we, I didn't know the conversation was going to go there how to know it I would have known and I would have, I would have practiced so forgive us but I think it's a great story. It's, I think it's I think it's a big big step that we saw. So I think it was worth talk, bringing into the conversation. Um, another thing that I you know I think that that, that uh, you know Larry Larry Woodrow who's who's, who's uh, one of the hunting one of my hunting mentors and a bit of a big part of the wild community. He's eighty now. Um, I mean, and he's got it figured out. Like so, he goes before he goes moose hunting. He drops into the band office and says hello and uh, introduces himself, tells him where he's going to go, where he, where he plans to go, gets some guidance from the band uh, or the nation where he's hunting as to where to go and and 
and then he goes hunting and then he comes back and he comes back to the band office he's like is there anything I can offer elders in the community from our harvest? So he ends up giving um, the tongue and the heart and, and 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 part of his harvest to the to the band, and then they really value those particular um, cuts, and as well as some you know some of the, one of the hindquarters or whatever is welcomed by the community. And they and and I've noticed that there's a lot of like in, in a number of band offices I've worked in. Uh, there's often an elder, an elders freezer uh, that you can do, make donations to. Um, so, and on, in my hunts, like, I've, I've always um, given the elk tongue to uh, to uh, in, indigenous communities because there's a strong connection to that, or it's a bit valued. And I never really knew how to prepare it. Now, I did make elk tacos last year. Elk tongue tacos. Elk tongue tacos. I'm being a little bit more possessive of it, but <laughs> I think it's important. That, you know, like you just make the gesture, and um, you know, I certainly. Uh, I think that's important to try and, and, and make that connection and potentially a donation to the elders community if you if you have that connection or if you've established that I think it's probably something worth considering as as you as you go down this road and try to do things a bit differently maybe it doesn't even necessarily have to be edible parts they may be looking for hides and and bone and yeah yeah we, stuff yeah, well, we, too, right? totally so, yeah there's, there's the antler and, and other things that have been asked for and, and, and donated to communities antler and, and hides and uh a number of things over the years, so yeah, that's a good point. So it's just, uh, if you establish that connection up front, and then maybe you get prompted to you know pat the hide out or bring yeah, we actually we brought the moose hide and the deer hide last year into the community, mm-hmm. and so that was yeah that was well received. Um, yeah, but that's a good point, and that again comes back, I guess, really into our into our conversation about somewhat about reaching out to the community right so again if you had a hundred and some odd thousand hunters reaching out but it's again uh, yeah i think it's it provides that acknowledgement again too right like you're like i just think it's so important i think that's such a big component of reconciliation and to me right i mean this is my personal view again it's coming from a settler state <laughs> so it maybe hold doesn't hold a lot of weight but it's providing that acknowledgement of their existence for occupation onto the area for for time immemorial and and acknowledging their their value system and and sharing your value system with them as well too and that's so super important right and you, and you know like first nations have a lot of obviously shared interests right family's a big one um you know spiritual backgrounds a lot especially on the coastal first nations areas um you know there's very much that that whole component too and you know they had a really stringent management land management systems back in the day I mean, you look at the bellicoo valley for instance they used to have a population of over ten thousand individuals lived in that community yeah. pre-settlement and they used to manage it by having fish weirs label all up the river and they used to have river guardians that would go up and uh they would actually manage the weirs they would go up to the next weir and be like okay open it up time to move over they to move the fish up the river this is how many we are seeing come through the river and obviously like the village of concrete down at the mouth was was sort of was revered to be like the highest value settlement the highest value village into the into the valley and then you move your way up the valley further up towards stewie and and then new sculch and and so that the, it was really interesting though to, to listen to the new Alcom talk about the system of management back in the day for a population that's two, four, six, eight—that's five times the size it is right now—and yet we 
we're you know like so that management system was in place and living strictly off the land yeah and we look at it today and we look at 2,000 people that are living there and it's like and amazing yeah well you know, and, and they're complaining that there's no trees left we, yeah. can't, we can't sustain our logging practices and all oh, this stuff know, right? it's like well yeah anyways that's a whole other story yeah, yeah. <laughs> but again so that's true it's totally going down a different way but again it comes back to your story about going into the into that village site in that bay over in over on the west coast of Vancouver Island and just having listen to those stories and that helps you to understand where they're coming from too on that onto their perspective of land management land base and that's why it's important for them to be part of the decision making process mm-hmm. you know, big time um, and and title and rights acknowledgement of rights and so I think that as we are hunters we go out in that land base we provide that acknowledgement um, and you know, provide them the stories of where we're going. What we're doing is not—it's not a bad thing. And providing that offer of food for of harvest for where we just came from is that's incredible, right? That's huge. Yeah, yeah. I think that they, you kind of summed it up beautifully there, of kind of what why it's important. And I and I think that acknowledging and understanding some of that history, I think we all have a responsibility to understand that history and learn about it and take those opportunities to learn. And and I think one of the reasons why I, I kind of wanted it touch on this and what I've been thinking about it lately I um, I want to add a uh, like I, I teach the core class the hunting course um, and I'm going to add a chapter on this reality that we're in now and how to best approach yeah, um, hunting mm-hmm. on traditional territories and I've been thinking about it lately and been putting that together and that's really probably why I was thinking about this and we were talking about it yeah. but going forward I just think it's so incredibly important like I mean we as a hunting community, well, you know, as, as, as people who are conservationists, and we're all conservationists because we have a strong tie to our land base in British Columbia, and that's because we're hunters, because we're parkies, and, and because we just care about critters. And there's no, we need to build, as conservationists, wherever you're coming from, we need to build partnerships and relationships with other conservationists in order to have a strong voice to, to fight against the industrial development that's happening across our land base and the vanquishing of our forests and the industrialized uses that are happening across our land that are affecting the habitat and the critters that live in those 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 places that are no longer functioning as ecosystems anymore. And we're we're not doing a good job of working with the most important communities that have the strongest invested interest in what's happening on the land base. And when I say, uh, what, what I'm getting at is, I mean, we just, hunters are not talking, they're not aligning, they're not, not, we don't have a relationship with the indigenous communities who have, uh, who, who have been sounding the alarm around what's happening on the land base for, for generations now and have a, have a seat at the table saying, this is what's happening, this is why I'm concerned and it's affecting our ability to harvest and sustain uh, our, our family from the land base, and yet we're, we're saying the same thing as a bunch of hunters, but we haven't even we haven't really created that integration to recognize that there's an op- we, we, we need to all work together, and and it, where there's an opportunity, you know, work together to advocate for you know protecting wild places and the critters that live in those wild places, and and I see that as a huge opportunity moving forward, and I, and I we're a long way from there. Like, yeah. Not only are we not talking, in, in, in a lot of sense, it's almost an adversarial, unfortunately, in, yeah. a, in a big chunk of our community, that's an adversarial sort of relationship, unfortunately. I, 
absolutely. And, and, and I, you know, I, you know, I'll be interested if, if, if this podcast sees a light of day, which, you know, we'll <laughs> see how it goes. But, and I'll be interested to see yeah. the feedback we get from, you know, the hunting community. I'll be interested to see the feedback we get from my community and the indigenous community <laughs> to see where this lands and if it's something that we can, I'll probably vet it through some friends of mine and me. Oh, you know, huge that way too. You know, and, and just see what, if, it, if, this, if this is palatable and if this is shareable with the larger community. And if you've listened this far, and, and it, that must mean it's out there. But um, <laughs> I, I, I think that there is a huge, there's a significant opportunity for us to um, do a better job of understanding do a better job of communicating for us, particularly to do a better job of listening. listening. And, and uh, I think having some responsibility. Responsibility. And responsibility. Listen. And I think that's the point, is that yeah. I don't think we recognize the responsibility we have as a hunting community to start our way down this road and start working our way towards reconciliation. So we'll leave it there, guys. But totally. really, that was a... Hell of a conversation to have. Five o'clock. At the, end, <laughs> the end of an intense day. Like, totally, uh, yeah. These guys are in town for like a. We're, these guys are doing verbal judo training for park rangers, and uh, so they spent the day like on top of their game. I actually spent the day uh, working in, in a meeting with uh, a First Nation community talking about co-management of a park, and yeah, this is yeah. So this is all yeah. Anyways, this is all pretty real for us. But anyways, appreciate you guys listening, and uh, hopefully you'll take some away from this. Uh, uh, this, this this topic and um, yeah we're uh, gonna go for Korean food so anyways till next time we'll and break <laughs>